you can open up to Acts chapter 4, and that's where we'll be this morning as we give our attention to God's Word. Hey, this morning we are continuing our series on the mission that God has given to us as a church to make disciples who know God, grow together, and reach our world. And so this morning we're talking about part two, growing together and the centrality of community life. Uh, There's a lot of opportunities, as you can see, to connect with uh, group life at King's Chapel right now. But our prayer is that what would guide us in all of this would be Christ's vision for us as his people. And that our group life would be shaped not just by a search for new buddies to drink craft beer with and new buddies who are easy for you relationally, but rather the life-giving realities that have always brought power and joy to the community of faith. That's our vision for community here at King's Chapel. So let's look at Acts chapter 4 and see what marked this community of faith. Verses 32 through 35 says, All the believers were one in heart and mind, that no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. But they shared everything they had with great power, The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. All right, let's pray together. Lord, we ask you now that through your Spirit, that your word would not return void, but that it would accomplish every purpose for which you've sent it deep within our hearts. Give us eyes to see what you envision for us as your people, the bride of Christ. Help us to grow up together towards maturity. And God, we pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear your calling on our lives specifically. And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, a couple weeks ago, um, I gave you an illustration from The Lion King. This morning, I'm going to come with uh, another animated movie, Ice Age, um, to set the tone for our story. And um, yeah, there they are. Those are the, the main characters. Let me tell you about this movie if you haven't seen it. There's a pack of saber-toothed tigers, and um, they are attempting to attack a tribe of nomads, And there's this mom and her baby who are attempting to outrun these savage beasts, only to be cornered at this raging waterfall. And this little boy is then left, and he's soon discovered by these very three, these three very unlikely uh, and very unusual cast of characters. It's a mammoth named Manfred, or Manny. Uh, There is a sloth named Sid, and a saber-toothed tiger named Diego. Now, these, these are animals that should really have nothing to do with each other, nothing in common. In fact, normally, if they were to cross paths with each other, they would attempt to devour one another. And yet, they are suddenly united by this common mission to return the baby safely to its father. And so now, bound by this commission, as they set out, they begin to encounter all these different challenges. And they realize at one point, in fact, that they're on an erupting volcano. And well, since they're walking across glaciers made of ice, this is really bad news because the heat of the lava is melting the very ground beneath their feet. 
And so that begins to happen to Diego, the tiger, who gets isolated on this island that's suddenly burning down all around him. And as this world is crumbling around him, Diego kind of makes one last leap to try to get back to his companions, only to be left dangling from the edge of an icy cliff. And his grip begins to fail, and he begins to fall, and Mammoth Manny sees this happening, and he is unwilling to let Diego perish. And so Mammoth Manny races to the edge of the ice, knowing that his weight will surely cause the cliff to collapse. But anyway, he runs, he grabs Diego with the trunk, and he tosses him back safely onto the mountain. And all of a sudden, the ice collapses, Manny begins to fall, and yet miraculously, he is saved as well. And when the dust settles, Diego says to Manny, why did you do that? You could have died. And Manny says, because that's what you do when you're a part of a herd. You always look after each other. To which Sid Sloth declares, we are one strange herd. Well, I think that has a lot to do with the church of Jesus Christ. We are one strange herd. Uh, Why else in the world would we be here gathering week after week except that God has called us together, that he has called together this people with all of our differences and all of our variances like mammoths and sloths and tigers, each one of us. He's called us together around this centrality of biblical community, that we would be willing to die for one another for a common mission and identity. That's what's to mark us as the people of God. Eugene Peterson said that gospel community is a colony of heaven in a country of death. That's such a beautiful image of gospel community that all around us, the world, we see that there is this brokenness and there's this death and despair and discouragement and loneliness from broken relationships, relational death. And we see that the death of morality and the death of culture and the death of real meaning in our our world, and there we become a place of life and hope and joy. What would make us a community of faith like that? Well, I think that's what our passage is talking about this morning. And first, I want to look at our oneness. The first thing that sets us apart in this passage is a colony of life and hope is our oneness. It says a oneness in heart and mind. Look at verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. And so this oneness is actually sort of a summary statement of all that has preceded it in the book of Acts. And what's being summarized is that this Christian community is one in heart and mind, both as it relates to their identity and their activity. So let's look at their identity, their oneness of identity first. In Acts 4.12, it says, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit, And he was preaching, and he says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. That's our oneness of identity. I am someone who needs to be saved. I am in need of salvation. We as a people are in need of salvation because we are sinners And there's no other hope for us except in the person of Jesus Christ. And the reality of Jesus bringing salvation to us freely is meant to make us both humble 
as we become aware of the depth of our sin and yet also incredibly honored that we are the object of the beloved, that we are his beloved. And so with that humility, that's what enters, moves us to enter into community. We move into community with that humility to look after one another, to serve one another rather than to devour one another. This is fundamental gospel identity. And then secondly, we're one in activity. Do you see that there's a oneness of heart that's meant to bring common activity at verse 23? Listen to what it says. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all the chief priests and elders had, to, had said to them. So here's Peter and John. They've just left the Sanhedrin where they're being threatened with jail time and violence And when they return to this community of faith, they're gathering together to pray. And they say, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. And they began to worship and pray. And now notice this. Notice the scripture passage that they pray through as a community. It's Psalm 2. And it says in verse 25, a quote of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. This is their oneness of activity summarized by what they're praying in Psalm 2. They understand that the anointed one spoken of in Psalm chapter 2 is Jesus the Messiah who has come to them. And he has not only died for them, but he has risen for them to life. And so if the king of kings is here and he is bringing new life Their own lives and activity has to become centered around this new common mission in order to bring the realities of the king and his kingdom right here, right now to planet earth, not just as it is in heaven, but here too. And so they are one in activity and they are one in identity, but they are also one in the expectation that this will not be easy, that it will cost them. Because these kingdoms will always be in conflict with each other. It says the nations and the leaders will rage. In other words, they will plot and they will scheme in vain to take down the kingdom of God, but it will be unsuccessful. And so they go out in this common mission, united and expecting that moving out together will cost them. It will cost us that the world will not like it, that it will mock us, that it will threaten us and move forcefully against us, and yet they continue to pray. And so Acts 4.31 says, the place that they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God boldly. I want to ask us, how would we become a shaken people, united and bold for the king and his kingdom? What would shake us? I think it would happen for us as it did for them, as we center around the person of Jesus, his resurrection and his kingdom. And it would happen for us as we gather to pray, dependent on him and his grace. That's what makes us a shaken people, bold in the face of our fears or any worldly threat, bold in our identity, bold in our activity. This is to be the activity that marks and shapes our group life is centering around the resurrection in prayer. Well, secondly, what marks them as a community is resurrection hope. Look at verse 33. It says, instead of hoping for retirement or the weekend getaway, instead of hoping in healthy, happy children, 
or as Andrew said last week, the managed life, what they're hoping in is resurrection. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Now, what's interesting about this is if you know the story, just weeks ago, Peter is in front of the same Sanhedrin, except this time he's watching Jesus be questioned and arrested and being led to his death. And Peter is in the shadows of the courtyard, and he is denying Jesus in front of the Sanhedrin, even in front of this little girl who says, aren't you one of his disciples? No way, no, not me. Curses at her. And yet now, he stands again before this same Sanhedrin, threatening him, willing to imprison and kill him. And he says to them, Jesus, whom you crucified. That's what he preaches. What is it that changed him, you think, from fear to boldness? What has made this scattered community now the gathered community with boldness in prayer? It's resurrection. It's the hope of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why Luke says the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection. Here's this gospel community now gathered together right in the midst of all the brokenness and death in the world around them, being mocked and socially marginalized and persecuted. And yet this united community of faith declares, we will not join you in the despair and the hopeless attitude, the perpetual despair that you are in about the world we live in. Instead, we will be a community that is resilient for life because our hearts have been restored. We will be a community for redemption in the face of death. Why? Because Christ the King has risen from the dead. What choice would we have? And that means that as John Piper puts it, The worst that anyone can do to you is dispatch you to paradise. It means that the worst that anyone could do do to you is kill you, which would actually bring resurrection. So he says, what is there to be afraid of? That's resurrection hope. Romans 8 says that you have not received a spirit that leads to fear, but rather a spirit that brings hope Encouraged. Do you know that hope and courage this morning because of the resurrection? Because the Spirit testifies that you are His beloved children and therefore heirs. If you are heirs with Christ in His suffering, then you will be heirs with Christ in His glory, Romans chapter 8. So let me ask you this question. If you're on your way as a family to Disney World for a week, Are you upset when you drive past Six Flags and it's closed? No, you don't care at all because you're going to the Magic Kingdom, right? And I realize that we live in a world that is really troubling and difficult, but we as a community of faith, if we are the people of the resurrection, we have to stop living our lives like all that there is to hope for is some sort of cheap parking lot carnival. No, we have a new kingdom. That's our destiny. Do you really believe, do you really believe that we will sing, that we will feast in the house of Zion? Well, if you believe that, then it will change the way you think about suffering and heartache and struggle here. You will not be grasping to the things of this world 
but you will say very freely, God, send me. And so let's let that shape our commitments and our community group discussions this year. This hope of the resurrection. Number three, abounding grace. The third mark of this community is abounding grace. Look at verse 33. Much grace was upon them all. The word there for much is megas. Mega, mega grace, abundant grace, abounding grace. What that means is that in the gospel community, grace is not this one-time event that becomes sort of this stagnant reality like the Dead Sea in your heart, but it's this powerful momentum. Grace is this thing that abounds. It rises and swells within us as a body. Grace driving us forward into mission. This is the grace that we want to catch fire in our small groups and in our homes, in our families, in our studies. Grace, this reality that I have favor with God, not because of my work, but because of his work. And I'm free and I'm secure and I'm loved. I can let the guards down. When, a gr- when grace swells in a community and abounds, it gives life in a country of death. Over the sabbatical, one of the books that I came across was by Wendell Berry. It was called A World Lost. And I want you to listen to how he describes one of his characters. I really love Wendell Berry. He does such a good job of describing like the heart of the human condition. And one of his characters in his book is Aunt Judith. And this is what he says about Aunt Judith. Her demand for love out of her hopeless emotional economy always outran the available supply. Let me read that again. Her demand for love out of her hopeless emotional economy always outran the available supply. You know anybody like that? I'm like that sometimes. But we've got to be a community of abounding grace or else we will demand from each other and we will devour one another, we'll hold grudges, we'll stay on the sidelines, we'll only hang out with people we like, we'll feel burdened and overwhelmed every time there's an opportunity to serve, and we'll keep our guard up. But when you live in the secure and satisfying economy of the love of God, the grace of God, then the demand for being love is fulfilled. And I'm finally free to love because grace has an abundant supply. And so where grace abounds, there's a new economy of security and generosity and joy. And where it abounds, God's people are made secure and free and ready to engage. Would that mark our gospel community? Number four, selfless generosity. Verse 32 No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything that they had. Look at verse 34. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them in the community. Now, first, I want to just say that this is not promoting some kind of like socialistic or communist society. First, what this is is, uh, saying is it's an attitude of the heart. If you look at verse 32, it says, no one claimed. It means that the church is not legislating that we pool all of our money together and then we get to decide what we're going to do with it. As if no one would own anything and no one would have any wealth. 
It would sort of undercut all ownership. That's not the point. The point is this attitude of the heart. They're not claiming or calling any of their stuff their own. It's that when they looked at their stuff and their money and their resources, they did not say mine. They said yours. And so the first place that they begin to take this attitude of generosity, this mindset was towards the people who belong to Jesus, who are part of the community. And they said, how can I care for them? And so this passage is about a mindset that is invading the community of faith, this selfless generosity. And he goes on to say in verse 34, from time to time, those who own lands and houses sold them. So there it is again. It's not something they're doing all the time. It's from time to time. People actually own land, people who actually had wealth sold it, and then they would take that money and they would distribute it to the church. They didn't necessarily give it all, but they knew that it was all his, and they gave it to one another. Now, I want you to think that this was a big deal in Jerusalem, because in Jerusalem at the time, if you were to identify with Christ, you were immediately marginalized. You probably didn't get work, and you would run out of people to trade with. And there was persecution and death, and widows were losing their husbands and sons. And so the needs of the community at this time were great. And only the people of God, only the church could meet them. And so here's this unbelievable line. There were no needy persons among them. They suddenly have this new reputation. If there's any need, a financial need, a need to be welcomed in, a need to connect, a need for counseling, it would be promptly absorbed by the community. The rulers start saying, hey, we can shut this thing down. All we have to do is threaten them and imprison them, and yet it doesn't work because generosity explodes in a community that gets grace. I can remember the first time I had exposure to this sort of thing. I was in college, and I was about to serve on on one of my beach projects as the project director. And... um, the overall project director for that particular beach project was Mike Heron. Now, some of you know Mike Heron because he was here in Carrollton for a while and worked at the University of West Georgia with CO. And so I had the opportunity to work pretty closely with Mike that summer, and uh, he invited me over to his house during one of the retreats, and we were going to do some planning. And uh, as we were sitting at his kitchen table, his doorbell rang. And one of his supporters had driven over in a brand new minivan. Now, a week earlier, this same supporter had given Mike his old minivan. Now, for the Herons, this was a pretty big upgrade. This van had AC, and this van only had 150,000 miles on it. So the Herons were already ecstatic at this gift that this supporter had given. But then this supporter drove up in the new van that they had just purchased And he pulled out the keys and he said, Mike, I've changed my mind. I am not anymore going to give my leftovers to the kingdom of God. If it's worth doing, then it gets first place. And he handed Mike the keys to the new van and took back the old one. And Mike began to weep because he was seeing a vision of selfless generosity because of the mission of the kingdom of God. Do you see it? Is that unbelievable? that people would live that way because of what Christ is doing in the world. This is selfless generosity. And it's to mark us as the people of God. Barnabas is given given as an example in verse 36. It says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means sons of encouragement, he sold a field and he put it at the apostles' feet. 
please understand that this is not a description of hypothetical community. This is not naive idealism. This is real practiced Christianity. Barnabas was a real human being who owned a real field and he sold it and he gave it because he saw a need, because of grace. And the reason why this community was so generous is because they understood how generous God had been with them. The reason that generosity flows is that we have a fundamental understanding of our spiritual bankruptcy before God. And yet at the very same time, we know how deeply we are loved and how much he has done to cover us with his riches and his record and his blood. And so grace is the place where stinginess goes to die. Some of us aren't stingy with our money, but we are stingy with our time and our homes and our availability. Might I suggest that wherever you and I are tempted to do this, to do this with our lives and our time and our availability, it's not because we have a giving problem. It's because we have a grace problem. When we have grace abundantly, we become generous. Grace produces generosity. If you and I are not generous, then we've got to fight for grace. We've got to embody it and explore it and embrace it and seek to know it and to understand it. Because whenever we understand grace, it moves us to be generous, generous and generosity will flow. This is the community that I believe the Holy Spirit is wanting to create here at King's Chapel. And I long to be a part of it with each of you. Lastly, submissive trust. Submissive trust, verse 35, they put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. You know, the exact same thing was said about Barnabas. He put it at the apostles' feet. Do you see submissive trust there? This isn't about individuals doing their own thing and saying, I'm entitled to my land. It's my money. I'm going to do with it what what I want. You're entitled to your stuff. This is being a part of a community. And sometimes being a part of a community means that I'm going to submit my stuff to the trust of leaders who God has appointed to see the need and to distribute it. And you say, I trust God will work through you to give it out and to do it well. To anyone who has need. Anyone who has need, to anyone who has need. There's not a lot of qualifications in this text. But this is the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 15. To the church who is now empowered by the Holy Spirit, there shall, now, there shall be no poor among you. Listen, last Sunday, another family in our own, we, uh, we hosted a meal for four international students from Africa. And we asked them, hey, what are some differences about America and the culture you grew up in? First words they said was, you put sugar in everything. We can't go anywhere without sugar. And, um, and then they didn't sugarcoat what they said next. They said, you guys in America have a problem with authority. You know, over in Africa, it doesn't mean that we think all of our leaders are perfect. But there's an essential belief that my parents, my mom, my dad, the elders in our community, that they have a wisdom that I, don't, I just haven't seen yet because of my experience. And so you guys, though, have a real anti-authority thing going on in your culture. And they're right. And this text pushes against, it flies in the face of this anti-authority age that we live in. 
But submissive trust is a mark of gospel community. I'm going to close with a story about um, my oldest son. And uh, he's going to hate it. But he has always had, he's always had great comedic timing. And um, I can remember watching the show Ninjago with him when he was young. That was a pretty popular show. It was closely watched, closely followed in the Wozniki house. And it's about these little Legos who dress up like ninjas and they fight evil wherever they go. And uh, on one of the particular episodes, the lair, the, um, uh, the dojo, the training center had come under disrepair. It, it was blown up. They, they can no longer meet at their little uh, training center. They had to find a new place. And so they go to this new training center, they find it, and it's, it's really a, a fixer-upper. It's in it's bad shape. And so there's dust everywhere and mold, and the paint's coming off the walls, and the windows are cracked. And the, the sensei says, you guys got to clean this place up. This is a mess. And so um, they decide they got to get to work. And so they go into the tornado of creation. And they start spinning around really fast, and they kind of all come together, and they, they get into this big, super fast tornado. And wherever this tornado starts going around the room, like all of a sudden the dust starts getting cleaned up, and uh, the windows are suddenly fixed, and the paint is renewed all over the building, and suddenly they have this new clean dojo. And Caleb says to me, I think I need one of those for my room. <laughs> telling you, he's always been right on it. Here's what I want to ask, is what if that was the reputation of our church? What if not a tornado of creation, but we were a tornado of restoration, and that by our coming together as the people of God, anything that we got near in this broken world, broken places, broken people, would suddenly become back to life, and that they would have an encounter with the source of life himself. I got to tell you, I think this is our calling as the the people of God, that he has given us a mission that we would wrap ourselves around resurrection hope and grow in his grace, that restoration for this community called Carrollton, Georgia, West Georgia, that restoration and life might abound through us. Would you pray towards that end, that that's what we would be about as a community of faith? Let's pray together. Well, Father, we... uh, We really long to be a part of something new, to be a part of your new world and your new kingdom and your new kingdom realities coming to bear on our lives and the community around us. And yet we know it will cost and our instinct, our instinct is to close off and to guard. But God, would your grace work mightily through us and would the hope of resurrection and the far greater kingdom to come, would it reshape us and renew us as your people And give us life even as we start a new ministry year. We need your Holy Spirit. And we need dependent prayer. Make it happen, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.